Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the head coach of the University of Arizona baseball team, Chip Hale. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a man that's done it all. From the big league player to a coach to big league manager and is currently the head coach of the University of Arizona. Ladies and gentlemen, Chip Hale. Chip, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. All right. The famous minor league video that I did watch last night, by the way. Does anyone know it's you that hit the ball? Uh, and for the Boone podcast, it's the video that's played all the time. It's in Portland, which was the AAA affiliate at the time uh, for the Minnesota Twins. And and that's Chip right. and myself, Chip and myself actually played against each other there. I love that yard, by the way, deep right center. But it's uh, Chip hits the ball. Roddy McRae catches the ball, runs through the wall. Looks like it killed him. Uh, but it's kind of that blooper that that's been played year after year after year. Does anybody know Does Do people realize it's you that hit the ball? Cause all I'm thinking when I re- finally found out it was you was chips got to be going, that's a knock. He just took a knock away from me. Yeah. So most people don't. And like even my players here in Arizona, they, they got wind of it and they were amazed, you know, that it was me that I could hit like that. But, um, to be honest with you, that you know, it ended up being a triple. That ball hit his glove, and when his face hit the wall, Brett, it, it shot the ball shot out of his glove back towards the infield. That's oh, okay. So, so know. it was a knock. It was a knock. Okay. Yeah, it ended up being, a, and then I wasn't very fast, so I ended up getting a triple out of it. Uh, and I was also worried that, the, like you said, that, that he was dead because the way he went through the wall. Um, but the funny thing was, it was a hit and run, which I was a great hit and run hitter in high school, college, pro ball. And I always hit the ball on the ground. And for once, I, I elevated one. I mean, I got that. And you know how deep it is out in right field. Right center's I big. That's a big boy. I could, yeah. I could, left field was short. It's like Fenway. Left right. field was really short, and right field was so deep, and I could never get it out there. And I'm thinking as he's going, I'm like, you're going to catch that ball? Come on. But, yeah, yeah that- it ended up being a triple. Well, you, you mentioned the hit and run. Well, you're back in the college game now, which which we'll get to in a bit. But uh, you, you know, we we don't need the hit and run in the big leagues anymore, Chip. You know, you know about that. 2022, there aren't too many hit and runnings going on. <laughs> you're exactly right. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> I think if we had a few more, it'd be exciting. Yeah, we'll get to that, and and uh, yeah, but that's pretty interesting. Times have changed a little bit. Okay, born in San Jose. I want to know ch- about Chip Hale as a kid. Give me a little, give me a little snapshot of that. Favorite team, favorite player, always baseball. Do you play other sports? Yeah, baseball. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I loved all of them. Whatever was in season, as you know, back then, uh, we didn't play baseball year round. I mean, I played football all through high school to my senior year. I played basketball till my freshman year, and I figured I wasn't going to be tall enough to play that. And I wrestled a bunch uh, as, as a youngster in junior high. And uh, we grew up in Cupertino is where we started, uh, was, you know, till eighth grade and then moved up to Moraga, which is east of Berkeley, um, for high school. So, yeah, I loved them all. Um, probably knew baseball was going to be 
have a chance to get me some college education. Uh, when I was in high school at Camp Lindo High School, Morag, we had a really, really gr- good group of guys ended, have, ended up having a first-round pick. Um, and a bunch of guys went to Pepperdine. A bunch of guys went to Arizona out of my 83 class. So uh, that kind of was, was what led me. I, I, you know, I, I always did want to play football, but I just never got big enough. Favorite team. Favorite team was the San Francisco Giants. Because I did grow up on, in the South Bay. Um, down in, in Cupertino, like I said, and the only games I ever went to were Giants and and 49er games. And then when I did move to the East Bay, I did go to a lot of Oakland A's games in high school. But yeah, favorite player was Chris Fire, which was interesting because when I got into pro ball and got into the coaching side of it with the Diamondbacks, uh, Chris was our AAA manager for the Diamondbacks, so it was pretty cool because people always ask you that question, right? Who was your favorite player growing up, and who did you? idolized and you know i went to games with willie mays willie mccovey uh tito fuentes and i always loved that guy aspire because he just he was a he was a grinder he was a go-getter you know and i'd always try to get his bat on bat day really spy i i think what was spire's son's name uh justin justin spire i played with justin spire that's right i'm sure you did yeah yeah pitcher. yeah P- pitcher with the reds I remember that. I remember that. Um, You end up going to U of A, uh, but you got an appointment to the Naval Academy, correct? Yeah, I did. It's it's, that's a great one because, you know, Brett, we had a great American Legion team Um, in the summers. You know, we play Legion ball. Obviously, everybody plays with all these kids from all over the country now, but we played with our high school group and uh, we ended up going to the World Series in 1982 and got a lot of um, interest uh, from the Ivy League schools and the, the academies because I was a good student and I was a decent player at that point. So, yeah, Navy recruited me. I actually, you know, they don't do recruiting visits, but I went on my own with my father and was really enamored with it. I always was uh, – I loved the Army-Navy game, and I could have actually maybe been a kicker on the football team if I went there. So I, I was excited about it. Uh, I went through the whole process of getting my um, appointment. I got accepted. And then at the last second, I turned it down to, you know, to obviously go to Arizona, which was, was probably a good decision. U of A. And, and for everybody out there, you know, I, I'm an SC guy. Uh, Chip's a U of A guy, so we're supposed to be enemies. And Chip kind of knows this, but I was recruited by U of A. And that was my dream college. I remember I got my first letter from you guys in 1985. Jerry Kendall, Jerry Stitz calling me on the phone. And believe me, I that was my uh, that was the school I was going to. And well, and, so, go ahead. So the, yeah, the, the interesting thing, Brett, is that my dream school was USC. Really? My uh, yeah, my father got his PhD at USC in the 70s. So when I was a kid, we used to drive down and stay for a month at a time on campus um, at USC. And we, he started two alumni clubs, one in um, Santa Clara County and one in, in um, Contra Costa. And we used to have Rod Dato all the time over, over and we had the team and had barbecues. And I thought I was, I mean, I wore something USC to school every day and I used to get beat up. I mean, you know, people would, you know, get on me about it, Stanford, Cal people up in the Bay Area. And then when it came down to, you know, my sister went there, she graduated in um, in 83. 
And we went on a recruiting trip, and Rod said, well, I can give you about $1,000 a semester. And, and I, I, at the time, I had my appointment to the Naval Academy. I had a pretty good scholarship to Santa Clara offered and a pretty good one to U of A. And uh, I looked at my dad, and I said, I'm not going to have your second mortgage at house to send me to USC. I'll just go to Arizona and beat, beat SC's brains in. <laughs> and, and by the so, way, yeah, it was little... it, it was hard. It's it's still hard to this day to watch um, uh, USC football and not root for them. Yeah, it's kind of that's a that's a kind of the switching. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing because I remember you know you know you always have one school you set your sights on and it was always U of A and then I'd watch you guys play and Chip Hale's playing second and that's where I'm going to play when I get there. So I'm a big Chip Hale fan. I go on my recruiting trip and it's, you know, the, the great Jerry Kendall, who's who uh, passed away a few years ago. And I come out for my recruiting trip. I'm going to let you tell everybody that that Chip Hale here was my host on my recruiting trip. But I remember when it ended and I went into to Jerry's office and I'm thinking, you know, here comes the full ride. And I don't know if you remember a guy you guys recruited. His name was Tom Reddington and he was a shortstop. Yep. From my neck of the woods, he was my rival high school. And he said, uh, Brett, you know, we're in here. I forgot what he offered me, but he said, you know, we're going to give the uh, the full ride to Tom Reddington. And you talk about your your dreams being dashed. I mean, if I'm looking at Jerry Kendall, like, are you serious? Are you serious? Fast forward a little bit. Um, I end up signing with USC, but right before that, I guess you you found out you were going to lose Reddington to the draft. So they called me late, U of A, and said, "Hey, uh, you know, we can we can do more on the scholarship now for you." And at that point, I was like, "No, I'm going to USC." Years later, yeah. at an event, I went up to to uh, Jerry, and JT Snow was there, and I told JT yeah. the story, and and I said, "Watch this," and I went over to Kendall, and I pretended like I was still mad at him. And he, he kind of looked at me and then I had to tell him, I said, Jerry, you know, I'm kidding, right? I mean, that was like 30 years ago. Everything worked out pretty good for all of us, but, but that was, uh, yeah, that was my, my dreams and they were dashed. Uh, you took me on my recruiting trip. How was I? I kind of forget. I, I, I remember it as kind of chip picks us up. I'm walking around. I'm so excited that I'm at U of A where I'm going to be going the next four years, which doesn't end up happening. And by the end of the night, he was the senior going, all right, time to drive drop these high school kids off yeah well we had you know we had a good we had a good deal with that whole recruiting that was a blast my freshman year on you know because back then we had a great campus obviously we still do and just the, the ability to take you guys around and meet all the people and um you know the beautiful co-eds here in tucson so uh i, I know you had a good time all right take me through the uh your college career, it en- ends up the highlight, you know, had to be the highlight. Uh, I never got to go to Rosenblatt, but uh, you guys, you guys win the College World Series in 1986. You had some great years there in Arizona. Um, overall, how was that experience? Was it, was it all was cracked up to be? Was it, was it better? Do you think it, at this stage of your life, you go, you know, U of A was pretty good. Maybe SC wouldn't have been as good because during those days you were kicking SC's butt. Yeah, no, that was the end of, of Rod's, you know, Dato's career, and they had dropped off a tad bit, and just the start of Coach Gillespie, you know, and obviously <laughs> they got pretty good after that again. So yeah, we kind of got him in that lull. Um, it was, it was, of course, it was everything it was cracked up to be to go to, to Omaha and win and win there in '86. 
Uh, it's part of the reason why I came back to do what I'm doing now, uh, to, to, to do it again as a coach, like Coach Kendall did. You know, he went there with Minnesota and won it and then won it as a coach at Arizona. So um, it was unbelievable. Uh, you know, and, and as you know from your days in, in college and pro ball, you know, just thinking about all the guys and the camaraderie we had and, and the, you know, quite frankly, you know, a couple of weeks before we even got to the playoffs, not really being sure we were going to make the tournament. You know, those kind of de- de- days and guys turning it on and playing great down the stretch. So, yeah, it was it was unbelievable. Uh, you hit 383 as a senior. You end up going the 17th round uh, with the Minnesota Twins. And I was checking it. You went straight to you went straight to Double A. You didn't even go to A ball. No, no, I went to Kenosha because I went oh, to uh, the Midwest League. Yeah, I went to Kenosha and actually led the Midwest League in hitting, which won the batting title, which has never been was never done before and never done since, I believe, by a drafted player. So I came in after, and I don't think it'll ever happen now because there's not enough of bats. But I came in and you know right after the, the draft. Went right to Kenosha, played every day, and you know how you, when you're in the minor leagues, you get the the packet, the, the stat pack every day on the in the middle of the clubhouse. With well, the yep. top ten hitter, and, top, and, and you're fighting stuff. for it. Yep. I never was on the top ten hitters till the last day of the season because I could, didn't have enough appearances to to make it on there, and. We clinched in Kenosha. We had a really good team. We clinched, and my manager led me off the rest of the year for two, I think it was three weeks. And um, I ended up getting enough at bats and beat out uh, Greg Ritchie and Jerome Walton to win the batting title. Jerome Walton, juice, another teammate of mine. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay, so what I'm looking at, that was your kind of your short season. Like when you get drafted yeah, after the College World yeah, Series, you was, went there. And then your first full season was in double-A. Am I mistaken there? Yep. Okay, yeah, Orlando. You to, no, you're right. Right, you went to Orlando, and then uh, you went to Portland. And uh, yeah, from 89 to, to 93 in that PCL. And then I went to that, Portland. And, and then I went to Portland. <laughs> and and I want to I want to get into that too because I'm thinking wow because you know we all go most of us uh, whether you know we get called up and there's very few guys that just get called up from day one and never see another day in the minor leagues. It happens, you know. Griffey right before right. me that happened to him, but the rest of us, you know, it, it took me a little bit of, of time. You know, I got called up in '92, and then Lou Pinella and and myself were were battling it out. We were having knock knockdown drag out fights, and he'd send me down and then pull me up. '93, it, it, we call it the shuttle. And then I was looking at Chip Hale's uh, stat book and I'm going, wow, I thought I was on the shuttle. You were in Portland from 89 and 93. Yeah, Uh, you got you got a cup of coffee in 89 and 90 with the twins. You're back in the big leagues in 93. You hit 330 that year. Uh, But then you have parts of a, a a lot of seasons up and down. Tell me what it's like being that guy that b- pretty much your whole career, you were up, down, up, yeah. down. You ended up with it with a it, hell of a doing a hell of a job, 277 career in the big leagues, 270 in the minor leagues. But take me through what your mindset was every year. Cause you were so used to that, you know, as we call the shuttle. Yeah. Um, well, you know, and most of those numbers were put up in the big leagues pinch hitting. So, 
it was a grind. And, you know, my wife, you know, we got married and had our first child in 91 and it was hard. I mean, it was like, you know, I have this degree and, you know, from U of A in finance, I have a real estate degree, you know, do, should we get out? But you just, the, the love of the game is so, so strong and the pull of it. And, you know, we, we just kept going back and forth and it's, it's, you just got to keep grinding. It wasn't easy. Um, but a lot of it I attribute to her and just keeping me positive and keeping me right. Because it's, as you know, um, when you're not playing a lot, when you're going, cause it's a lot different lifestyle, especially back then <clears throat> from AAA to the big leagues, travel, everything in the PCL. So, um, it wasn't easy, but I would never give up anything that um, career-wise ever had. Made me, made me a way better coach, I can tell you that. And it's funny. You hear, you know, a lot of times fans will say, and I always step in right away. I, I had a teammate that I played with in AAA, and you'll remember his name was Rich Amaral. And oh, yeah. He, he was a shortstop. For, he was my shortstop in Calgary. And he was a really good player. And, uh, you know, Richie, I'd talked to him all about it. He was in the minor leagues for 10, 11 years. I don't think he got called to the big leagues until he was 30 years old. He ended up playing five yeah. or six years. And it was so cool no, he, that a guy like that stuck it out for so long, ended up getting five years in the big leagues. And when you hear fans or somebody that really doesn't know what what life's like for, for players in the minor leagues and how hard it is to make it to the big leagues, let alone stay in the big leagues, and when I hear, oh, those guys are overpaid or this and that, you know, I say, I'll pull them aside if I can. And I'll say, you got to understand these guys sat, give their life to this game. And to the fact that the very few that make it to say that they're overpaid when they make it, you have then you must have no idea what they go through and the risk they take to make it. Because a lot of guys, you yeah. know, you probably know a lot of guys that played longer than they should have played. The writing was on the wall, but they love that game so much. And when you come out yeah. of the minor leagues and you're 28 years old and, you know, some of these guys don't have a college education, it's kind of like, okay, now I'm starting starting life and I'm 28. I'm kind of behind the eight ball a little bit here. So I those stories for me, that that, that success story that they grinded it out for years and years and years and make it, I, I think it's awesome. And, and uh, yeah, when I there's see no that, doubt. It, I mean, I, I played I played against Rich at, when he was at UCLA. I mean, he was a yeah. heck of a player. And, and you're right. His time and, and, you know, you guys had great teams in Calgary and great teams in Seattle when you guys were together. Um, so, yeah, those are and that's right. You know, when 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 the players went through the whole deal this winter with the lockout and the negotiations, you know, we did that in 94, you know, and we we lost a whole year of our careers. And um, I would say that I said, hey, these guys are fighting not just for the big money guys, but they're fighting for guys like me and the ability to have a great retirement. 97, you play with the Dodgers. That's your last year in the big leagues. Uh, shortly thereafter, you retire. When did you decide or, or was this all along as you were playing? Did you always have in the back of your mind, I, when I'm done, I want to I want to be a coach. I want to remain on the field uh, in that capacity. Was that something that you knew when when it was time for you to stop playing? You were going to go directly into that? I, I really felt like I wanted to. I wanted to coach. I <laughs> I'd made my wife a promise when we got married that I wasn't going to. <laughs> it's, it's kind of an interesting, funny story, but I, uh, towards the end of my playing career, I kept going, how am I going to break this to her? Because I know I can do this. I know I can help guys. 
get better. I know I could, you know, get my time, you know, cause at that point I had four years of major league service. And as you know, the magic number is 10, you know, to get your right. full pension. So I knew I could get my six somehow coaching, you know, I, I could do it. Um, and as you know, when you start something, just like when you start playing, you think you're going to go rookie ball, a ball, double a, triple a big leagues and be there for 10 years or do the same thing coaching. It's not that easy, but, um, <laughs> when you start those, those quests, you think you can do it. So, um, she was good with it. Um, we raised the kids kind of, as you know, you've been doing it longer than any of us with your, with your grandfather, your dad, and you where, you know, your wife kind of is the one that ends up raising these kids. So, uh, it was tough, but, um, it was worth it. You start off with the diamondbacks, um, in Abel in, in 2000, how'd you get to the diamondbacks? How was that organization? I mean, from, you know, looking at your career would make more sense to me. I wonder why I didn't go to the twins, but it was the diamondbacks. How did that, how did that opportunity come up? That's a great question. So I finished playing. Uh, I was with the Cardinals in Memphis. I played a whole year at AAA and had a blast. I mean, I hit well. Um, I hadn't played every day since AAA 93. 93. So here I am in 98 now looking for a job. Um, And no, in 98, I played in Memphis. 99, I'm looking for a job. And the only job I could get, Brad, I'm sitting here in Tucson, Arizona, living here, and I was going to go to Ottawa to play for the Expos. And I just looked at my wife. I said, I'm done. I'm not leaving. I'm not going to Ottawa and playing the International League. So um, just didn't didn't play ball that summer. I worked USA Baseball at that point was based out of Tucson, out of High Court, where uh, our stadium is now for the U of A. Um, So I worked Coach Kendall – uh, Coach Kinneberg, Coach Johnson from Texas A&M at the time were coaching teams, so they let me tag along and help out with um, the infielders when when they were in Tucson. Um, Xavier Nady was on that team; it was a great team. We actually cut Ryan Howard, we cut Brandon Webb. <laughs> we were real wow. smart, but um, did did that, and then got my resume and, and sent it out to all the teams. And the first people to call me were the Diamondbacks. And I, I, like I said, I live in Tucson and spring training at that point was in Tucson, Arizona. So, uh, it was a, it was perfect for us. I got to be here all spring. I was supposed to manage, uh, the Arizona rookie league in Tucson. Uh, but that, you know, when I took the job to spring training, they decided they'd rather have a team in the pioneer league and a team in the Northwest league. So I went to the pioneer league team in Missoula, Montana and uh, started my coaching career. And and as everybody knows, you know, a ball managing is different than big league managing. A ball, it's like, nope, you got to put, you, you got to go coach third. I believe was it like that yes. back then? You were the skipper, but yeah. you also had to coach third base. Yeah. Now this was now. Remember, this was short season, so right. oh, okay. I actually ran. I, yeah, I ran the ex- extended uh, spring program until the draft. So that was a whole nother great experience, you know, of organization and, 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 you know, getting kids better every day and getting them ready to go on to the next level. So yeah, we go to Missoula. I'm the third base coach. I'm, you know, we're in these uh, temporary pods as as a clubhouse. It was a blast. And we're, you know, our, our trail, I don't know if you ever played in that league, but you're going from Provo, Utah to Medicine Hat, Canada. It was a long travel league. 
Yeah, I didn't. No, I never played in that league. Oh two, oh three, you're in El Paso. Huh? That's that's what I that's what I tell kids now as a college coach. I said, hey, one thing I can tell you when you go to college is you're probably not going to have to spend too much time in the rookie level. <laughs> that's right. Like you, that's I, right. you know, I I went I went to that Carolina league was my short season, and then I started. Yeah. I was in that league you were in in Orlando. Uh, I played for Jacksonville. So there's a lot of long yeah. trips, and there's a lot of travel in that in that Southern oh. Lake. A lot of long bus well, trips. Well, I was in Orlando, so think about that. Our closest team was Jacksonville, and then it was it was eight hours. Yeah, everything was eight hours. It's like, all right, day game, get on the bus, and we'll see you in the morning. Yeah. And by the way, no you doubt. got you got a game today. <laughs> Uh, 04, 04 to 06, you managed uh, the Tucson Sidewinders. And um, 07, you get your first shot in the big leagues. As a coach, you come in for, for Bob Melvin, and you're the third base coach. And I think this is a position um, – that doesn't get enough credit. You know, you always tell all the, you know, all the, the cameras and all that's always on the manager and how important his decisions are, which are important, as you know. But that third base coach, and, and I always loved the, the real good third base coach. I would always go up to him and say, hey, just send him, you know, because that means ribbies for me. And that's all I used to want. Be aggressive. Be aggressive. I had Ray Knight as a third base coach. He was great. Uh, and I'd always tell him, just send him, Ray. Just keep sending him. Um, but there's there's really no glory over there, and there's a lot of of uh, criticism when you make a mistake. You can make ten of the greatest sends you've ever you know that everybody else knows, but that one time where you're off or or he doesn't get as good a jump as you thought, and you send him in a big situation, you're going to hear about that for a week. Tell me about making the transition, especially at the big league level. You've you've coached third base in the minor leagues. I know that that's different. But when you get to the big leagues. And your coach in third, uh, did you feel any of that? Like, okay, right, we got to make a good call here. How did you approach coaching third base? Because it is so important. Yeah. Well, first of all, the great thing about coaching third, I think, at the big league level, especially, is you feel like you're a player again. I mean, you are part of it. And like you said, that you grind, you study arms, you study everything the field, um, the dimensions. So you're back, you know, you're, you're almost got, you get that adrenaline going a lot more than you did, um, you know, just managing a game in the minor leagues or coaching anywhere else on the field. Uh, it's, it's intense and you are exactly right. You could be perfect for a week and then you send one guy and, and he gets thrown out or you don't send a guy and they think you should. And, uh, and as you know, you hear about it. Those fans will let you know whether it's your home, home fans or the visitors, but, um, it was great, but again, I will say this, that doing it for all the years in the minor leagues really helped. And I, I don't know how guys, and they do it a lot more now, as you'll see, there's a lot of third base coaches in the big leagues that have never done it in the minor leagues, which I, 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 I don't know how they can do it. It's, it's, it's a very difficult position. That's funny. Good, a good friend of mine who actually we went to high school together, Phil Nevin. Uh, it's been, yeah. you know, third third base coach for a while, and and I'll always, you know, I'll catch a game, a glimpse of a game, or he won't send somebody. That's usually when I'll send him a text. You know, go, come on, man, how are you not yeah. sending him in that situation? And he'll call me back. Well, booty, let me explain it to you. When really I'm just kind of busting his balls a little bit, <laughs> but but yeah. it's you know, I, I I do at the end of the day, I do know how serious it is, and and how that it's a pressure cooker because I remember, you know, my time with with Pinella, I spent a lot of time with. 
with Lou as my skipper. And, uh, you know, as long as everybody was safe, man, Lou is happy as, as could be. But that one time you get somebody thrown out or, or like you said, you wouldn't send them. You're never right either way. You know, you, you could have done, you could have the greatest month in the world where, where, you're a huge contributor to the team by by the the calls you've made, but that one bad call, and even if it's you know for a split for a split second, that skipper getting uh, getting down your throat, like how you know, and and then it usually dissipates. But uh, yeah, it's a pressure yeah. cooker over there. Well, you go to the go ahead. You, you played for a guy in Lou Pinella who <laughs> those my fa- guys, favorite of all time. Yeah, <laughs> so Bob was Bob was very easy to coach for because he. He trusted you. He even told you, he goes, I can never do that. So you, you know better than me when to send him and not to send him. So that, I was very lucky in that, in that regard. And, you know, that first year, 07, we ended up in the league championship series with, uh, against the Rockies. So it was, it, was, it was pretty cool to be able to do that. 11 and 12, you go to the Mets, same thing. And now we're getting back to the A's, Bob. You're, you're reunited with, uh, with Bo Mel in, in Oakland. And you do that from 2012 to 14. Now you got a little bit of a different role. Now you're moving into the bench coach role. Explain to the audience right. what what does a bench coach do? Obviously, I know what he does, but you you tell me from a real bench coach uh, perspective in your experience what what now did your job entail that it didn't in that third base coach position? Yeah, well, you know what's funny is as a third base coach, I I did run spring training. So most bench coaches will design spring training per what the manager wants and and you'll write it out and you'll, you know, you'll, it's gotten a lot more, you know, detailed over the years since I played and you played. Um, But I did run it as a third base coach. So that wasn't something new. Uh, That was easy for me to take over. And then the biggest thing is, is, you know, you're, you're the guy who sits next to the manager and he runs everything through you. And you have to have all the numbers you have to have, you know, and, and obviously in today's game, uh, especially with the Oakland athletics, uh, there's a lot of things they want you to know. And, and the front office expects you to be able to give to the manager so he can make an educated decision on, on uh, pitching on you know, the offense, anything. So you're that guy that has to have it and he has to have trust in you. And it's important to, um, and I've seen it a lot of places where, it doesn't work that way. And, and, um, you know, the staff gets out of whack. Yeah, I think too, if I were to, if I were to go manage today, I, first of all, I want the best bench coach I can have guy with experience, but a guy, like you said, that trust factor, because as a mm-hmm. skipper, a lot of decisions you're, you're making, you're the skipper, you make that decision, but there are times where you're, you know, you're undecided and it's kind of like, I could go, it could go either way right here, but let me run this by the guy I trust most in this dugout. And he may sway me one way or the other. You know, when I've got my mind made up, I'm probably not even going to ask you, or I might ask you, but I, I, I kind of know what I'm going to do. But there are those times where it's a coin flip, you know, not it, there's no wrong answer, but Hey, maybe let me, let me bounce it off my bench coach right here. If, and and maybe he could say if he's strong with an opinion right there, well, it makes my decision easy. Did, was there a lot of that going on when you did that? And f- in the future, when you become the manager, did you ever do that to your bench coach? Yeah, there's no doubt. And I can tell you this, this is really an interesting thing. I would take it a lot harder 
when things didn't work out as a bench coach, when, when we, when I would give him opinion, we'd go either way, you know, it might not have been what I wanted. Um, it was something different, but if we, it didn't work out when I was a bench coach, I felt like I was letting him down when I managed and I would use my coaches, bench coach, whoever the pitching coach, I would, I would be so at peace with my decision because I had all the information. I felt good about it. So I could live with it a lot better. But as a bench coach, you just feel like you're letting people down too much. It, it, it was very difficult. Isn't it interesting, though? And most bench coaches probably feel that way when really the skipper, you know, most skippers, you know, throw, throw a few out. But most skippers, they feel exactly how you just explained it. Like, I, I got all the information I could possibly have. I formulated my, you know, what I was going to do. Yeah, maybe I, I, I ran it by my bench coach. He affirmed what I was going to do. We did it. and It was over. But, but you just hit it on the head, I think. A lot of bench coaches probably feel that way when it's quite the opposite. The, the skipper's yeah. not feeling that way towards you. But you can't. I think that's just the nature of the business. Yeah. And you know what? The, 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 the great thing about, as you know, baseball is you, we, know, we never forget. And I, as a college coach, the same way, you never forget how hard the game is and how, how funky it is. And how uh, you watch a game all the time. And you'll see major leaguers. I saw last night in the Detroit game, a major league guy just overthrew a, um, a rundown, you know, throws into left field or, Today in the Diamondback game, the the Dodgers, you know, just a sacrifice bunt. Muncy throws over the first baseman's head. They cost him a game. I mean, these are the, the best of the best. And so even the greatest decisions you make, um, it takes execution. 2015 uh, had to be a pretty big time. You get first shot at, at, at being a big league manager. Uh, how did it change for you when you got that position in, in Arizona? Yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was great because you, you feel like you, you, you basically chronicled the whole thing, playing, coaching the minor leagues, managing the minor leagues, um, coaching the big leagues, third base coach, bench coach. So now your, your next step, right, is that managing spot. And uh, it's a dream spot because I live here in Arizona and uh, it's our major league team. So um, working for Tony La Russa and Dave Stewart, you know, two great, um, Hall of Fame people, and so I, it was. It felt fantastic, and putting the staff together is important. And, um, so we felt like we were, you know, we, obviously you get the job because the team hadn't done that great. <laughs> so you think you're going to improve it, and uh, the first year we did improve it. How'd you go? Did your from bench coach situation to, to a manager, did you change at all as far as your relationship with the players? I always thought about this. People would ask me about coaching and managing. I said, well, bench coach, you have the, you have the luxury of kind of being buddies with the, with the players. You're, you're kind of that, that right arm of the manager. You know, you get, you get a pulse on what's going on in that clubhouse as a skipper and, and all the, the managers I had, and I had some great ones through, through the years. You know, I had Bo Mel for a couple of years, Lou, yep. uh, Bobby, Bobby Cox, Davey Johnson, one of the best skippers out there. But I felt, you know, I had Bruce Bochy, but I felt like there was a little bit of a distance that, that I think the manager had to put between himself and the players. Can't be too close. Doesn't mean you can't have, you know, be yourself and have your personality. 
but I thought there was a difference and, and you could feel it between that bench coach and that skipper. And, and I think there had to be. Did you feel that way when, when you became the manager or, or did you just keep on with the players relationship like it's always been for you? No, it happens. You don't want it to happen, I don't think. But it, it's like you said, it's almost forced because your coaches have to be those tentacles, you know, the octopus's tentacles that kind of go out and get a feel for what's going on in the clubhouse. You try to get out there as much as you can, but I mean, <laughs> you're pu- you're pulled in so many different directions between media, front office. Um, you know, to me, the best managers, Brett and Bob does this so well is they manage up, they manage down. So they're, they have the heartbeat of the owner, the GM, all the assistant GMs, and they know what's going on all the way down in rookie ball. So, um, you know, you're, you're trying to get a feel for all these different things. So, of course, your coaches are so important to you to get out there and sort of, you know, get the, get the feel of the club. How many, how many wins is a manager worth, big league team? That's, that's a great one. I, you know what, I, I think a lot more than people um, give them credit for. I couldn't give you a number, but. I think that's really undervalued now. You know, I think if you asked your father, who I worked with in Washington and had a great relationship with, um, and he would come in and help all the time with our manager and sit with him and, and try to calm him down about things and, and, you know, teach him different things because they, we make those decisions on the fly on the field. And some people think you can just go by a script and you just can't do it because a game – you know, Tony Lewis said a great thing to me. He said, you know, we're going to give you all this information. He goes, and you're going to have a gut feeling about something. And he goes, just make your decision with an educated gut. <laughs> and that's right. what it comes down to. So, yeah, I think that, you know, is it three, five, ten games? Who knows? And I think the great managers have the great guts. I really do. I think, you know, there's certain and you know it as well as anybody. There's certain things where you have a, you kind of have a plan before the game. If you know you have all these scenarios in your in your head, if we get into this situation, I'm going with him. I'm going with him and uh, for this situation. But there are those times where there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. It's just what do I go with? And I always felt like. Uh, my experience with the managers, the the best ones always had that great gut when it was when it was nut crunching time, had to make a decision, not the easiest decision. It seemed like the great ones always kind of push the right buttons or consistently do the right thing. Um, so I, I bring it up that gut thing. It, it resonates with me. Yeah. And you knew, and you know, as well as anybody that you can you can manage a game. Perfect. Put everybody in the right spot. Right. Put the right, right pitcher in. And it's not, it doesn't work out sometimes. No, if he hangs that slider, he hangs the slider. <laughs> if he strikes out with a runner on third and less than two, there's only so much you could do as a skipper. No doubt about it. You're 100% right. Uh, 17, you go back, you're reunited with Bob again as a bench coach. Uh, then in, in 2018, and, and this was the stint, you, uh, you, you, got to, you hung out with uh, my dad, Bob Boone, who's who's been in the game seems like forever, but you were there from eighteen to twenty, and uh, take me through nineteen a little bit. What a ride, and and how cool it was for me, just because Dad, being a front office guy, uh, he he won a World Series in nineteen eighty. 
but I, I, I could hear him. Yeah. You know, you know, Bob Boone, he's not, he, he really doesn't talk much. He's, he's about uh, a humble, a guy as I know, even though he's my dad, I, you know, obviously I'm a little biased, but not really. He's just that guy, never braggadocious, never talk, you know, anything. But I could tell when you guys were making that run in 2019, how important it was to him. Like, like he almost felt, I said, dad, as a player, how cool was it? He said, you know, the best. He said, but I put so much time in on this side of the ledger. It would be really cool to win the World Series. Uh, and I watched yeah. him through that whole, through your whole postseason. And when they won, I'm telling you, he was crying like he was, like he's a little baby. And I thought it was so yeah. cool to see that. And he said, Brett, this is just as cool as as in 1980 when he won in philly and he goes and nobody ever knows they don't even know i work for the organization but you know just all the time i put in and it, it was really cool and it was cool as a, as a son watching him go through that how proud he was of you guys and what you were able to accomplish take me through that 19 season it had yeah. to be awesome because you kind of got hot it, at the right time <laughs> it came out of nowhere well, no one we, no one picked the nationals to win it it's just you caught lightning well, in a bottle yeah Here's what happened. And he knows better than anybody because he and Mike Rizzo were really close. So we were, we were really bad. We were 19 and 31 and we were coming back from Los Angeles and the rumor mill was going, Hey, they're going to fire everybody. They're bringing up all the different minor league guys to, to finish out the season. And David Martinez did a really good job of just saying, you know what, if they do it, they do it. If not, we have to figure out a way what do we do? So Riz comes in, sits us all down and kind of, he, he gives us the marching orders. Hey, I don't know what it's going to take, but this is not acceptable. You know, the ownership has spent a lot of money on this team, the whole nine yards. Your dad comes in kind of like, Hey, you know, what do we need? You know? And we're like, we just need to play better. We need to get healthy. So, you know, Trey Turner comes back. Anthony Rendon comes back from injury. Juan Soto comes back. And, you know, you get, you get better when those guys come back, right? <laughs> I would think, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, right? So we start playing a little better, and we get a little momentum. We start getting some walk-offs. And, and, and here comes, you know, that big momentum starts to roll. And we made a few moves. They made a, some really good moves at the break to get some veteran players that could kind of loosen the guys up in the clubhouse. Gerardo Parra, as Drupal Cabrera came in, they changed the clubhouse. And it was amazing. And, and Davey did a really good job of just letting these guys take the clubhouse. And as you know, sometimes managers want to control what goes on in there. And that's one thing I learned there was, Davey, it's their, their clubhouse. Let them, let them be. And, they just played better and better and trust each other. And we got in the playoffs and, you know, we won the wild card game. Juan Soto hits, gets the big hit against Tater. We go on to play the Dodgers. And, and to me, that was a world series. When we beat the Dodgers, I think everybody in that room said, we're winning it all now. We know we can beat anybody. So yeah, we go on and beat St. Louis. And then of course, Houston and in a funky world series where we didn't win a home game, you know, we won every, every road game all four. So, um, it was, it was, I, I, you know, I'd never been through that as, as a player never as a coach. And I don't know if it was just cause we played another month, but it, it, it was excruciating for everybody. I mean, I don't, 
if COVID had not hit, I don't, I mean, we were flying Brett and we had so many people on that plane that now that we know what COVID is, had the same exact thing as, as COVID. They were, they were the most sick team I've ever seen. We won that world series and those guys just kept battling. Yeah. You, you, I remember uh, going into the postseason. I said, I'm telling you, the Nationals could do it. That nobody was picking you, and the only reason I was well, like, who's the thir- who was your third starter? Who was the lefty? He's still there. Pat Corbin. Right. I Patrick said. Uh, I said on any given night, Corbin can be a lights out number one. I said we know Scherzer can be, and you know Strasburg can be, and Strasburg ended up really stepping up in that postseason and pitching his butt off. Yeah. Well, that, that's what it was. I, I mean, Strasburg, right? And, and I always look. I always, I always look at it that way, Chip. It's like most, most of the time, the team holding the trophy at the end of the year usually has that dominating starting pitching. And if you don't have, you know, you saw it in the Diamondbacks in two thousand when it was the Schilling, Randy Johnson, and they kind of the two of them walked them to their World Series championship. That dominant start frontline starting pitching. Uh, if you have it and they, they're hot all at the right time, they can carry you through. And I'm not saying just because of that, but, uh, you know, it was y- y- I-, I couldn't discount you with that with that talent uh, in that rotation. Yeah. You know what? It's so funny because I think the wild card teams, because you're forced to play all the whole season, they have an advantage going into the playoffs. And, and I remember when um, in Oakland in 14, we we went to uh, Kansas City to play the wild card game, and Don Wakamatsu is a good friend of mine. We played against each other in high school, and then he was at ASU when I was at U of A. I said, Don, I said, whoever wins this game is going to win the World Series. And you remember they beat us. We were ahead, I think six six one or six nothing in the eighth, and they they came back and beat us, and then they went on to win the World Series. So. Um, it's interesting. I think those teams you have to really be careful of because they're the hot ones. Uh, after 20, you go to the Tigers uh, for a year or a part of a year. You're back coaching third base. And now you get into the present position you're in, uh, 2022. You're back uh, to your alma mater, you know, some 30, uh, at least 35 years from when you were a player at, <laughs> at, at U of A. But how did that come about? And uh, what'd you tell Hinch? All right, I'm leaving. Well, <laughs> so it was a great, I'll tell you what, that was a great organization that end my professional coaching career at this time. They, they were so good to me and we had so many young, really nice players, but um, uh, Jose Cruz Jr. A month earlier took the rice job. So it was so funny. I'm we're like, you know, cause he had just started his first time he's ever coached. And now he goes back to coach college. So the U of A coach, after they go to the World Series, leaves to go to LSU. So now here's the U of A job open. And AJ, and AJ's a, you know, he's a huge college baseball. He plays Stanford. Still has really strong ties with Dave Esker over at Stanford. So he goes, I'm not going to lose another coach to college, am I? And I said, you know, at the time, I'm like, oh, who knows? And so I ended up talking to the athletic director. He came out and uh, talked to me in, in Cleveland for a couple of days and uh, everything worked out. So I was very blessed to come back here to Tucson and get to lead, uh, like you said, the program I left in 1987. 
It's, it's kind of a trend now. You got across town, you got Willie Bloomquist, a teammate of mine for a lot of years in Seattle. Eric Wedge is doing it. You mentioned Cruz Jr. Uh, it's kind of a trend now. You have big league guys moving to the college game. It always wasn't like that, you know, or, or I don't no. know if it was ever like that. So it's something that no, just recently right. has started taking that on. Um, differences, college pro. I think I know your answer. Well, I've been doing yeah, my homework on you, but I'm going to, I'm going to let you answer. Yeah. The, the recruiting part of it's the biggest thing. You know, uh, the one thing I knew when I took the job was I had known nothing about the recruiting. Um, so I need college coaches. So I hired some fantastic college coaches. Uh, one of the best recruiters in the country in trip couch, um, got them out of the sec and said, you know, you're in charge. Tell me what to do. Let's go. And then I kept Dave Lawn, who's a longtime college coach um, at Cal, USC, um, Reno, at Arizona. So we had him and then hired two, two younger coaches that had been doing the college thing also and had been in pro ball. So it, it's a perfect match for me. You could bring sort of the, the pro game to the college, but you can't forget that that uh, it's a different set of rules um, and these kids have to go to school. There's a, there's a huge time constraint that you're given every week. Yet now that we're in season, we get 20 hours a week with them. So you have to, you know, again, like I go, I harken back to my days as a coordinator or running spring training. You have to make sure every minute is accounted for so you can teach these guys um, what, how to play. You know, that's, that's the only thing I'd say is, you get some interesting questions like, hey, coach, should we play the infield in? I said, we're up by five runs here. I, well, you know, we're okay. Go Maybe back. next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned the recruiting part, and that that's the most interesting part to me. Uh, it's different than when you and me were playing in, in the 80s in college where, you know, if you were the – the number one overall pick, the signing bonus was 450,000. It was a little easier to predict, uh, you know, unless you were that high first round pick, uh, it was 50, 50 where guys were signing. I remember, you know, my class was, uh, uh, Mike Mussina went to Stanford my freshman year, uh, when I was at USC, he was going to be a number one pick. And he said, I don't care what you give me. You're not going to be able to give me enough. I'm going to Stanford. Well, nowadays, you get picked in the first couple rounds, you're getting millions of dollars. So really the college isn't even an option, you know, because the, the organization will throw college in. Oh yeah. And we'll throw a Stanford scholarship on top of it. So it's, it's different. You've got to recruit almost the good player, but not the great player. And that would be, you know, it's, that's a tricky game. Also, do you have to worry about the rankings on, on strength of recruiting class? Do you have to consider that when you're recruiting? Just give me a little behind the scenes on for you. It's kind of, this was kind of your maiden voyage of that recruiting process. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's really interesting because we, and, and, and they're talking about changing the rules, you know, th- this may change, but, we are recruiting at this time kids that are in eighth grade. <laughs> so, I mean, you just, just imagine that, that we have camps. These kids come into the camps, and you're trying to project how this kid's going to be as a freshman in college when he's in the eighth grade. Um, and there's a number of kids that are there, as you know, 
with your own kids. These kids play ball year-round now, so we get a better idea of who they're going to, what they're going to be like. But it, you can't project that; it's hard. So we, you know, we we can't call them. They can call us. I got a text today from a kid that's a sophomore in high school. I can't text him back, but he can call me or text me anytime to give me information. Or want to just say, Coach, I'm going to call you at six o'clock tonight. Can we talk? Sure. You know, and they, and they can. They can commit to to Arizona as freshmen, sophomores, eighth graders, juniors, but nothing's binding until they sign their letter of intent during their senior year of high school. So what you have is this sort of gentleman's agreement in in college baseball that I don't think football has. (laughs) And once, you know, know, we're looking at a kid at Orange Lucerne or something, and he commits to Coach Savage over at UCLA. Well, from that moment on, in, in my opinion, he's off the market. And you hope that everybody sort of does and goes along with this gentleman's agreement of not sort of going back channeling and trying to get him. So it, it is hard. And, you, and what you say about the rankings is you basically over-recruit. So what a lot of schools will do is they'll, they'll bring in, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll sign their, their class, and you get 11.7 scholarships to break up. And the least you can give a kid is 25%. So now you have, all, you know, you know, 35 kids or 30 kids on, you know, whatever scholarships. You bring them in, and some schools, you know, basically they'll tell you in the fall, hey, you're not going to make the team. And I, and I, I kind of got into this business not wanting to do that. I don't want to over-recruit. At times you have to because what you said exactly, you're going to have some first rounders that, that go away, and you know, good for them. It's at seven, eight million now <laughs> compared to what right. four hundred fifty thousand. Exactly. I mean, my eighty-seven or no eighty-three. My center fielder was the eighth pick. He got one hundred fifty thousand with the Pirates. Yeah, it's What's the, the game has completely now? changed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's about so it's, probably it's, f- five million, it's, four, four, eight. Yeah, I, I compare Brett. I compare the recruiting process to my, you know, trip is my recruiting coordinator. It's like a scouting department. You know, he's we we just played uh, at New Mexico State last night. We drove over four hours, played him, came back, and he left on Sunday after the game to go to Chicago to recruit for a week. So. You know, that's, that's, that's the beauty of it, of, you know, just sort of creating these staffs and some, it's going to miss some games because that part of it's so important. Yeah. How about the transfer portal? We didn't have that. Did we like when me and you were in college, we were basically there. And if you want to transfer, it was <laughs> yeah. a big deal. Now guys can just leave. Yeah, no, we lost it. When, when I got the job, I lost um, one of the, probably this, first, second, third, or fourth pick in the country, he left to follow the coach to LSU. So um, it hurt us really badly. We lost some pitching, and we got some, you know, we got a couple guys, but I will really experience it this year for the first time. So what you're going to see is, you know, a lot of the coaches, I, and, and I know I'm already making reservations to do it, but I'll have to go to, like, to the Cape Cod League. And basically – look at all these players that are in the portal at all these different summer leagues and then re-recruit them 
try to recruit him to come to your place. Yeah, that's it's, a new, it's in some ways, new, in some ways, like you said, we went to our school, and if we if you weren't a guy right away, you you kept plugging away to be a guy. Right. It's it's not like that anymore. You're getting a crash course. <laughs> You're learning it all over again. How about how about this is the the one thing for me, and and I'll let you go. But what's tell me what it's like now. It's first time it's out there. That's that uh, name Im- name image likeness. That's a new world for us and the in the athletes and the college athletes. Explain that a little to me and what you, what's your early impression of it? The nil. Well, I think yeah, nil. So. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, Daniel Susak is my one of my players who's going to be a high pick this year. He's a catcher uh, from the Sacramento area, and he's one of those kids, Brett, that could have signed out of high school and told him exactly what you said about Musina. Don't worry about it. I'm going to go to college for because he was a he's a sophomore eligible draft kid, 21. So he's got four or five different deals that people just come and say, hey. If you, you know, put this on your Instagram or you come sign this, um, we'll give you, you know, $5,000. And as you know, in our day, God, that was so illegal, right? Somebody's oh, paying me. Yeah, you, you're going to get most. I mean, there's, yeah, there's no real rules anymore. And so we are, the U of A has done a really good job. Uh, football and basketball have these collectives. Uh, we're forming our collective for baseball and you're just getting alumni and, and people who care about the program and you're trying to kind of stockpile money where now as, as a coaching staff, we can tell a kid, Hey, when you come here, you know, you get, you go sign autographs at this car dealership, you're going to get this much money per year. And um, the, the issue that was going to come into to play here, Brett is, you got to fill all these buckets. So we, you know, I'm trying to redo high Corbett field. I'm trying to redo the clubhouse. So that's a bucket of money for development that we're trying to fill. Well, now we have a bucket for NIL that we're asking people to, to put money into. So, um, (laughs) you know, you got to figure out what you need more. Do you need a new clubhouse? Do you need a new cage? Do you need new nets? Or is it more important to have some, something out there for these kids to know, Hey, I'm going to get, you know, I get my books, my tuition paid for, and then I can get $10,000 to this NIL deal. Right. And $10,000 as, as as a college athlete, you remember back in those days, like, Hey, it's nice having a couple hundred bucks extra in your pocket. Right. No doubt about it. So I know what the kids want, but they also like, they also like the, the, these beautiful clubhouses we we build in these days. That's right. It's it's all it's a, it's a new world, Chip. And it's, Chip Hale, it's going to change. It's yep. going to change. Chip Hale, I appreciate you coming on the program. This was great. Very cool uh, catching up with you. Uh, we go way back, and, and we've done you've done it all, and and it was really interesting hearing all the different. Uh, jobs you've held and not too many people have done as much as you but it's really cool you're back in the college game and you're I think you're 29 and 13 I think you got a a series with the Trojans coming up you never know I might pop up check you out yeah critique you critique yeah, you I'm, I'm excited I, I <laughs> hey the, the beauty of going to USC from the time I was a player was 
they, you know, they bring the band over there. It gets me more fired up, I think, than the USC players. So I'm excited <laughs> to go back and, uh, and have, a, have a good, good time at SC. Very cool. Uh, and as we do each and every Boone podcast at the end, we bring in the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy. He has a question for Chip from the fans. Dan, there he is. You rang? <laughs> Cheer right. up, would you? Mr. Hale, I have a few questions, and the fan is myself. So question number one, what does it mean to be an Arizona Wildcat? Well, it means everything to me because this is the place that, that got me to the major leagues. Um, I always tell Jerry Stitt, who is my hitting coach, who comes out to practice all the time, if it wasn't for him and teaching me how to hit the way I did here, um, I would have never gotten the opportunity to be a, a major league baseball player, major league coach, major league manager. So, uh, and this is where I live. You know, we've lived in Tucson. I'm a Bay Area guy that moved to Tucson, and uh, this is my town. So, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to be leading this program. At the end of every one of these podcasts, I let everybody know that the executive producer is Rich Herrera, who also happens to be the host of the Wildcats Radio 1290 radio, radio station in Tucson. What do you think of Mr. Rich Herrera? Well, I've known, I've known Rich forever, so I, I, uh, I, uh, I love working with Rich, and we do, we're on his show all the time. In fact... I believe I believe it was his show today that I had to turn down to do the podcast. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we know what's important. We know, and, and by the way, do you recognize this guy's voice, Dan? He's the he's the voice of the Wildcats. I am the voice of Wildcats Radio twelve ninety. That's Dan yep. Levy. <laughs> Well, that's all I got for you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it, guys. You wore you wore me out. That that New Mexico trip uh, killed my voice. So I apologize for my voice. Well, Chip Hale, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast, sir. We definitely appreciate you taking the time and and hanging out with us. All right, guys. Thank you. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe, never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29 I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.